Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 6. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You may be seated. And as you're seated, uh, let me just say thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a joy to be part of a citywide church, a network of neighborhood churches. Uh, it's one of uh, the highlights of my month or every couple months whenever I get to come out here and see brothers and sisters that are part of the same mission joined tightly together at, at Christ City Church uh, to bring Jesus to those who don't yet know him in our city. Uh, so it's a privilege for me to be here. I love you guys. I'm really thankful for uh, the time that I get to be here with you this morning. Um, so we're going to jump to the Word of God now, but as we do that, would you pray with me? We need to ask Him to help us. Father, we come before you this morning uh, with our hands raised and extended as children to their Father. We need you. Father, would you meet us here? Uh, would you work powerfully through your Son, Jesus Christ, by His Holy Spirit to change us? To cause us to, to see in a greater way how beautiful Jesus is as the righteous one. To cause us to hunger and to thirst for him, for the righteousness that he gives. Would you make us different? That we leave this place, look more like Jesus and shine more of his light to bring you glory. We ask that in Jesus' powerful and precious name. Amen. So I got a question for you as we're beginning and it's just this. Uh, who's excited about the election coming up? All right, so we've got, we got like two people. That's pretty good. Maybe, maybe four. Well, if you're, if you're like me, actually, you don't get excited about elections. Somehow this season tends to be a season that makes you a little bit grumpier. And it makes me grumpier, for one, because there's all these problems that I see in my country, in my neighborhood, in my city, and I only see a, a, a handful of candidates that only offer apparently marginal solutions to fix the problems that are there. And it can be discouraging. You know, an election is supposed to be an opportunity to make things better, to, to fix what's wrong here in this country. Every candidate, after all, does run their campaign based on ideas, on their solutions, on, on their platform, how we can make this place better. How I can uniquely solve the problems and bring the solution that's needed. But will it work? Has it worked before? It's easy to be pessimistic. Especially when we look and we think, we stop and we consider, you know, will, will a better action plan for our climate actually stop polluters? Or will better policing actually end crime? Or will a better social policy of some kind, actually bring the justice and the deep justice that's needed in our country. Political solutions, I mean, they're definitely efforts in the right direction, but we're reminded every election cycle of their limitations, especially when we look at the previous party that is, is now leaving, you know, maybe sometimes not leaving, but, uh, you know, now leaving, and we look and we see that a lot of things were promised, but the hope that we had kind of lived out and longed for leading up to the election, it hasn't been fulfilled. It didn't come. The change we wanted for didn't happen. Why? Well, I think it's for this reason. It's because political solutions only go so deep. 
And they can't fix the problems in our society that, that are at this deep level in you and I that need to be changed. They aren't able to, to do it. We think about this, we realize, you know, any effort to care for this planet, it needs to start with me caring more about other people than about buying more stuff. Or we could say, you know, any effort for justice to, to come in this neighborhood is only going to happen when I actually care more about my neighbors than my hobbies and my career and my own entertainment. It needs to start here. It needs to start with me. Here's the good news, though. Jesus knows this. Praise God. Jesus knows this, and he has a solution this morning. He sees a world that's broken, but he doesn't run an election. He speaks of a greater need and a greater solution. He speaks of true blessing, true flourishing, true happiness. We all want that, don't we? He speaks of it not for those who hunger and thirst for a greater political candidate, but for those who hunger and thirst for a greater righteousness and come to him to find it as citizens of his kingdom. So today we're going to be looking at the fourth beatitude. We're in the Sermon on the Mount series and the beatitudes begin the Sermon on the Mount and we're in this fourth statement of blessing. And it's this, the fourth beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. And as you look at this beatitude, we're going to have a really simple outline. Just look at it in its parts. We're going to ask the question, number one, what is righteousness? Number two, what is hungering and thirsting for it? And then number three, what does it mean to be satisfied? We're just going to try to unpack that and hopefully by the end we'll understand this beatitude a bit better. So look with me at our first point, what is righteousness? So now in, in this beatitude, Jesus identifies this blessed, this happy, this flourishing person with this idea, this word, righteousness. Or in other words, Jesus looks at the world and he sees the problems that our politicians and that we see. And he says that the blessing, the better world, the thing we long for is found somehow related to this word and this idea of righteousness. Righteousness is at the center of this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But let's be honest, that sounds pretty strange, doesn't it? That sounds strange to us today in our world. After all, a word I promise you that you didn't hear, I checked, I read the transcript, just to make sure, a word you didn't hear offered as a solution to the problems that Canada is facing is the word righteousness in the federal debate last week. You didn't hear righteousness. You heard a lot about unrighteousness of the other candidates, actually, right? But you didn't hear about righteousness as a solution to what's wrong with Canada and how to fix it. And yet, and yet Jesus' solution for the problems that we see is all about a greater righteousness taking root in the hearts of the citizens of his kingdom. It's all about a greater righteousness in the hearts of his people. How does that land on you this morning? Is it a little bit strange? Does it even maybe make you a little bit uncomfortable? Does that word righteousness make you slightly uncomfortable? I think that for many of us, it does. It's a strange word in our culture today in Vancouver in 2019. And one of the reasons for that is that, well, you know, Canada is not where it was 50 years ago. Uh, we have largely left a sort of a Christian formation of our society, our language and our politics, and a lot of things have changed. And as a result, the word righteousness just doesn't have the street cred that it had when your grandparents were young. 
right? It's just not a word that we throw in like, oh yeah, righteousness, great. Talking with your buddies in the coffee shop. It doesn't happen. But there's more though that makes us even wary of this word righteousness than that. I want to get at it this way. First with a quote. There's a professor named John Frame, and he's written a ton of helpful books and articles on, on philosophy, on theology, and he says this about God's righteousness. And this is why we have a hard time with it. His our God makes demands of us. He expects us to act according to his standards. Righteousness is, if you're looking for a shorthand definition, is fundamentally about doing what is right. Righteousness is doing what is right. But very importantly, the righteousness Jesus speaks of here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not righteousness defined by you or I. It's the righteousness defined by the God who made us, the God who created this world, who knows how it operates, who knows how you and I ought to operate uh, for the best results, for the greatest flourishing and happiness as human beings. And as a result, his righteous standard is not actually asking to be debated. It's demanding to be obeyed. This is deeply offensive to us today. We live in a world that is decades past that famous 1960s Times Magazine headline asking the question, Is God dead? We threw off that whole idea of being accountable to somebody else, especially a divine somebody else, a long time ago. And we're living in our newfound freedom. I get to exercise my life according to my rules, how I want to live it today. We're living in that world. We like our freedom. We don't like this idea of a definition of right and wrong imposed upon us by somebody else. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason, and this is the reason, it's because we've identified our happiness with being able to make our own way. We all think that our human autonomy, our independent pursuit of what I want, the way I want it, according to the standard of my creation, that that will actually make me happy. That that will bring me flourishing as a human being. But we have to ask the question, has it? Has it? Will it? And this is precisely where Jesus is so wildly countercultural because he says, no, it won't. Jesus says the truly happy and blessed and flourishing person doesn't make up their own way, but hungers and thirsts for God's way. No, we need to clarify something here, though, because when we hear that word righteousness, I think we often think of this impersonal list, right? It's a list of do's and don'ts. Some of us might think of, you know, just dusty old church buildings, some pews, maybe some older folks or something. And we have this vision of of all these things that are associated with that word in our minds. But righteousness isn't a list. It's not a list. It has to do with who God is. It's not a list, it's a person. Righteousness is God as a perfect person always doing what is right. You know, for example, I want to try to illustrate it this way. Uh, I love my wife, but it would be really weird of me to, to take a 9 by 11 sheet of paper and to write a list of the characteristics of my wife, right? You know, uh, not a morning person, um, really hardworking, uh, super loving and kind and generous, it would be weird for me to like grab that list around the shoulders and be like, oh, this is my wife. I love this list. You know, I, I just want to spend time with this list. 
And no, I don't want that. I want to see that list, those qualities in a person. I want to see that list incarnate. They're reflections of a real human breathing person. And that's what attracts me to my wife. She's beautiful. I love her. And in a similar way, in a similar way, God and his righteousness, they're not abstract moral principles. It's so important. God, God's righteousness is who he is as a person. Not as a list, but as a compelling, as a beautiful, as an attractive person. A person who acts in human history. A person who records those acts for us in his word and shows us who he is to demonstrate his righteous character to us. Just look at what the Bible teaches about some of the characteristics of who God is as a perfect and righteous person. I got a a bunch of verses here for you. I mean, this list could be... This could be the whole Bible, but we're just going to look at a couple verses. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says this about our God. It says, The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Or Psalm 145, 8-9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all he has made and his mercy is over all that he has made. Or then again in 14 to 17 of the same psalm, the Lord upholds all who are falling and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. God's righteousness is the personal righteousness of a person. It's good. It reflects his character and his perfections. But it's also authoritative. And that freaks us out. It freaks us out. Because as human beings, we tend to be pretty wary of authority figures, don't we? We've seen a lot of bad authority figures abuse their power. You know, is God going to be like that? Is that the kind of righteous standard that he has? Well, no. That The testimony of Scripture of the Bible is that God isn't a bad authority. It's that God and his righteousness aren't bad for us. They're good for us. He wants the best for us, his children that he's created. And it's good because his righteousness comes from who he is as a supremely good person. That's who he is. How do we know this? We know it because he showed us. He showed us. Look at John Chapter 1, verses 14 and 18. God's word declares, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then 18. No one has, <clears throat> no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Our God has come to us. He's come to us to show us not just his righteousness in the abstract, but his righteousness incarnate through the righteous one, his son, Jesus Christ. You know what God is like? You want to know what his righteousness is like? Look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus teaches. Look at how he lives. Look at what he's done to accomplish our salvation. That will show you the character and the goodness and the righteousness of our God. 
And what has he done? Well, Romans 5 verse 8 is one of the the clear and awesome passages that's summarizing what, what Jesus Christ has done, what God has done through him. And it says this, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we look at Jesus, we see that God's righteousness, it's the righteousness of a loving father or mother who gets down on their knees who holds the hands of their children and looks in their eyes and is willing to sacrifice and even to die for them. This God took on human flesh and he entered our suffering through Jesus. He died where we should have because we have all rejected his authority. And then he rose again from the dead and he's brought us true and lasting life. And rather than just tell us then what is right, God has showed us his rightness, his righteousness in Jesus. He's demonstrated perfect righteousness in righteousness incarnate, the righteous one, his son. He's beautiful, he's compelling, and he's the righteousness that we need to take root in our own human hearts. To have that righteousness bear fruit in our lives. So to sum it up, Righteousness is doing what is right, but not by our standard. It's doing what is right according to the absolute standard of a real and perfect person who's shown to us in Jesus Christ. So righteousness is. But let's go back to this fourth beatitude, though, and our second point. What does it mean, then, to hunger and thirst for this righteousness? What does that mean? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's important because one thing he doesn't say is blessed are those who think about righteousness. Blessed are those who uh, study righteousness, who idealize righteousness. No, blessed are those who want it, who long for it to take root in their lives and to bear fruit in their lives. We live in a prosperous and a water-saturated city. So hungering and thirsting, not things that you and I typically relate to really well. At least I don't. I, I've, I've hungered, I have thirsted, but not in the walking through the desert for days on end sort of way. I suspect that you guys don't know hungering and thirsting that way either, especially if you're from Vancouver, and especially if you've been here through a winter and it's been wet. But I have hungered and thirsted or longed for water before, and I've longed for water before because I'm a good British Columbian and I've gone camping, and I've wanted to be clean. I've gone camping. I've been out in the bush for days on end. I mean, you don't want to see me uh, missing one day of showering. I'm a pretty greasy guy. It it builds up. You certainly don't want to see me after having missed seven or 14 days of showering. You know, when the sweat and the grime and the muck, they just cling to you. And somehow the smoke of the campfire, it's penetrated your, your pores and into the atoms of your very being. And it can't like get out, you know, and you wander around. You think, man, what is that smell? It just keeps following me around. I thought I was out here in nature. I wanted to smell pine trees, but I smell my, my B.O. This is awful. Right? When you're deeply filthy and dirty, you desire, you desire change. You desire a shower. You desire and hunger and thirst for a shower. You know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it's a deep hunger for change. It's a hunger for cleanness and for transformation on the inside. It's kind of like hungering and thirsting for a a shower for your soul. Because you've seen how dirty you are. You're sick of the stench. You want change. The blessed person looks at their life and it's not happy. They're not happy with what they see. 
Look at this world and they're sorrowful over its unrighteousness. They're reflective. And they're left wanting. They're left longing. They grieve over their sin. Personally. And they hunger for something more. They long to see God's standard of righteousness take root in their lives. To see the righteous one, Jesus Christ, come into my heart, into my life and make a change in me. That I'd be more like him and less like who I actually am. You know, I recently moved and I brought all my furniture out of the dingy lights of my old apartment and into these like really nice lights and lots of like wide open, you know, windows shining light uh, into uh, my furniture presently. And I saw things in my furniture that I did not see before. And I mean, I like to be a fairly clean person, but I mean, I've also got a three-year-old and, uh, and there are things in that furniture that, that were disturbing to me <laughs> as it came into the light, as it came into the light. You know, coming to Jesus is sort of like that. He lays you bare. He sees into the crevices and the desires and the motivations and the subtle thoughts that you have, the thoughts that you'd be embarrassed, mortified to have the person sitting next to you know about. Jesus sees that. You know, it's like a spotlight shining on the darkest places of your soul coming to Jesus. But rather than pull back and get away and and hide the sin, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you want more of that light. You want more of Jesus, even though he's laying you bare, even though you feel naked before him. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. You just want him. There's an incredible story in the Gospel of Luke, I think, that illustrates this really well. In chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells this provocative story of Jesus at a dinner party at the Pharisees' houses, at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And uh, the Pharisees were in that society these important people, the respected people, the people that had it together, the people that, that looked really great on the outside. And they're all together, they're all gathering around Jesus. But who should burst into the party but a prostitute? That should be shocking to us, just that. Somehow she got in, she wanders in, she's in the middle of the party, she's coming to Jesus. Everyone noticed. Everyone saw her. Everyone probably stared. Everyone knew who she was, but she didn't care. She wanted to come to Jesus. Look at Luke 7, 37 to 38 to see what he writes. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet, with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This is a scandalous picture. It's a shocking picture. This woman who everyone knew was a prostitute, she didn't hide her sin. She didn't put a mask on. She came into the light of her society and the light of Jesus Christ because she was desperate for him. And then she wept all over his feet and she expressed her gratitude in the language of a prostitute with kissing and washing with her hair this intimate way. She hungered and she thirsted for righteousness. She hungered and she thirsted for Jesus to do something in her life that she knew that no one else on earth could do. And Jesus received her. She wanted his forgiveness. Yes, and she had it. But she wanted Jesus to change her. And Jesus did. As wave after wave of his love washed over her. 
She just stayed in his presence. She wept. She kissed and she loved and she submitted to the only righteousness that mattered. You know, this beatitude is an invitation to be like this woman. It's an invitation to come into the presence of Jesus who is righteousness incarnate. It's an invitation to look at this world and to look at our own hearts and to be grieved by what is wrong. To realize what's wrong is me. What's wrong is you. I'm wrong. You're wrong. To see our sin in all of its ugliness and have it exposed in the light of Jesus Christ. To bring our needs to him. You know, we don't need a politician. We need Jesus. We need a greater righteousness to take root in our lives. We need him to bear the fruit that only he can bring in our hearts. To fill us with his love. So we love him more and be be like him. You notice though, notice though, notice this. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for hungering and thirsting's sake. Right? It's not like, all right, strong desires are good, the end. His hunger and thirst because they will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. So look with me at our third point. What does it mean to be satisfied? I want to get kind of at this through the back door. So let's talk about this for a second. Today, many people do actually look at the world's problems, right? They hunger and thirst for a particular kind of a solution. We can call it a greater righteousness. They wouldn't call it that. They want to see a better world. They want to be satisfied. But they tend to create some kind of a a righteousness. Again, they wouldn't use that word, of their own making. It's a human-made, man-made solution to the problem for their own need and their own satisfaction. Some hope for that, some, kind of, some people kind of hope for that through bettering themselves in some way. I read a lot of self-help books. You know, I'm going to go on some retreats. I'm going to try and solve some things and educate myself and become a better person. That will work. Or other people hope for this kind of greater righteousness or a, a better world through political solution of some kind. We've been talking about that a lot this morning. But still other people, I think, place their hope in technology. And this is very odd, but it's happening more and more today. I had, a, I had a, a friend of mine over, he's not walking with Jesus, a little while ago. And um, this person was telling me about how they have hope in artificial intelligence. When it becomes self-aware, how that will bring a greater righteousness to fix the problems of this world. The idea is that, the idea is this. The idea is, you know, hey, it'll be a beneficent artificial intelligence. And it will actually take the best of humankind, all our greatest virtues, and it will cause them to be established across our country and across our world with equity. And our problems will be solved and we brought out of our suffering. You know, I have faith in artificial intelligence. I mean, clearly he hasn't watched the Terminator movies, right? You know, human history, I think, is an epic tale of us being remarkably immoral and unrighteous. And I think this kind of hoping is pretty naive. Like, it forgets history. It forgets the problem of the human heart. Do we really think that we or a solution of our making is going to bring the satisfaction that we need? The better world, the righteousness that we need, it's not going to happen. Especially we should know that when we look at history and see how poor and terrible, ugly of a job have we done before. Just at recent human history, look at this last decade, this last hundred years even. And the point I'm trying to make is this. We all hunger and thirst for something better. We want to be satisfied, right? We look for something more. Yet we are incapable of providing that something more, that satisfaction that we long for. We can't do it. But Jesus can. Jesus can and he promises to. Jesus says the blessed person hungers and thirsts for righteousness and runs to him for the solution. 
says that person will be satisfied. Everything else will fail. We can't dig ourselves out of the pit that we've got ourselves into. But you know who can? God can. You know that God's been promising since human beings walked the planet to bring Jesus here as a solution. To bring about a greater righteousness that would fix the problem of the human heart and human sin. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah 55. And just a word about Isaiah really quick. Isaiah is this prophecy. It's it's long, but it talks a lot about the way that the unrighteousness of God's people caused all this suffering, all these things to be terrible. And it talks a lot about the righteousness that God will one day bring and put in their hearts to make them new, to bring them the blessing that they long for. And all of those prophecies in Isaiah, they point to Jesus. They point to Jesus. We're going to read this prophecy right now, but I want to say something to you. When we read it, hear God's invitation to you this morning, Christ City. Hear him inviting you in these words to come to Jesus, to receive from Jesus what only he can bring. Look at Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. God promises to forgive. God promises to bring righteousness through his word. And through the word incarnate, through Jesus Christ, he has done it. God is bringing the righteousness that we long for, that we need, that will lead to the blessing we hope for through Jesus. Through Jesus. What does that look like? How does that happen in our lives personally and individually? Also as a community, how does that righteousness take root in us? I want to talk about this for a few minutes now. And there's a pattern to it. First, what I want you to realize is that that righteousness begins with conviction of sin. You come into Jesus, you come into the light of his presence, and he shows you who you are, and you're convicted. You mourn over your sin. And then next, you run to Jesus. He, as he exposes your need and and sensitizes you to your sin, you run to him because you're hungering and thirsting for him to fix what's wrong. You come to him to make you right. You hunger for him as a righteous one. And he changes you to become like him. Sometimes really quickly in some areas of life, in some areas of sin and struggle. Other, Other times in other areas really slowly. But always moving you from who you were to become more and more like Jesus. But here's the funny thing. Even as Jesus grows us in righteousness in one area, he then starts to take the spotlight and move it somewhere else and expose another area. This has happened to me a lot in my own life. And the result is that 
I mean, I mourn my sin now. I'm more sensitized to my sin and long for change now, I think, more than when I first walked with Jesus. And I actually mourn sins that I don't think I would have noticed when I first walking with Jesus, first sort of walking with Jesus. There's a cycle here. It starts with the conviction of sin, then hungering and thirsting, then growth and victory over sin, <clears throat> and then greater love for the righteous one who starts to change us, and then greater conviction of sin again, and then more hungering and thirsting again, and then more growth again. And notice who's at the center of that cycle. Who's at the middle of all of that? It's Jesus. He's rigged the whole process, guys. He's rigged the whole process to make us hunger and thirst and come to him. To know his love more. To love him more. So he gets all the glory. We're satisfied in his relationship with him as he works on us. So here's my claim this morning. You're not going to find an old person then who's walked with Jesus faithfully for a long time who grieves less over their sin today than they did when they first walked with Jesus. First started walking with Jesus. It's not going to happen. Even though... I think objectively, they'll look more like Jesus now than they did when they first started walking with him. They're going to be more ashamed of their sin and crave him more and know his grace more and love him more and be more desirous of him now than they were at first. There's a really great quote from John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, the famous hymn. Uh, Kind of about this, because at the end of his life, after having grown from this terrible, awful, sinful person that we would abhor and grown a lot in Christlikeness, he says this. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. So what sort of satisfaction does Jesus speak of then, to sum all this up? Well, it's the satisfaction of growing in relationship with Christ as he changes you from one degree to become more like him. It's a satisfaction of being loved deeply by him every step along the way. It's not like his love increases for you. His love is for you absolutely 100% right now where you are in this room. No matter what your life looks like as you're putting your faith in him. It's a satisfaction of you loving him more deeply as he works on you and you comprehend his grace. It's a satisfaction that one day we will fully be like Jesus. Righteous as he is righteous. The Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, they only make sense if we believe the whole promise of Matthew, of the New Testament, of the Bible, that Jesus is a king who who came, was crucified, died and buried, but that he's coming again. He rose from the dead and he's coming again. He will one day come to us. We'll see him as he is. He will right all wrongs and we will be righteous as he is righteous. And that righteousness will bring the blessing finally and absolutely that we long for as human beings. So as we conclude all this, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you satisfied then with who you are right now? Are you the sort of person that looks in the mirror and is satisfied with who you are? Or do you hunger for more? Do you long to be whole? Do you long to be different? Do you long to be changed? Have you come to the end of yourself and have you begun to realize that the problem in this world is you? What this world needs and what this country needs, what your community needs and what you need is Jesus. 
He's able to affect change at a level so much deeper than anything else in this world. He can excavate your soul and he can till the soil of your cold, dead heart. He can make you new. He can make you righteous with a righteousness that doesn't change from decade to decade. It doesn't depend on your changing standard, but on his absolute and perfect person. He can forgive and love and accept you as you are. He will give you his spirit and he will start to work on you. And what Jesus begins, he will not leave unfinished. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Can you pray with me? Father, we come to you, and we ask, would you make us hunger for Jesus more? Would you show us the depths of his beauty and glory? Would you shine the light of his holiness and righteousness on our hearts? So we'd be convicted and we'd come to you to effect more change in us. Would you make us righteous people that shine in this world in Vancouver as a light and a beacon of hope, a beacon of what God can do in this city? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.